Our senior pastor, Jim Locke, is away, and so I am honored to be able to pinch hit for him tonight. Eric Mitchell is my name, and I love the Word of God, and so I'm eager to get into it with you. We do have a few um, sheets here, so I have four blanks, and before it's over, I'll give you all four of them if you'd like to fill them all in um, tonight. We are going to be in Luke chapter 11, the gospel of Luke chapter 11, and as you're turning there, I'd like to say a a word of prayer. Father in heaven, you are great and greatly to be praised. Thank you for calling us to this place uh, to worship you and to pray together and to hear your word. And now, Lord, as we open your word, I ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, that we would understand it and we would believe it and apply it to our lives. We want to be more like Christ. Help us to do that. Conform us to the image of Christ, even now, as we consider your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever witnessed someone who is the best at their craft, the absolute best, Um, whether it's in cooking, like my wife, or or arts, music maybe, or in sports? Um, When someone's really great at something, it captivates us, it pulls us in, and uh, I'm thinking of a sports date in mind, December the 29th. 1982, my good brother Terry Palmer will appreciate this reference. Any Alabama Crimson Tide fans in the house? Any? Okay, all right. No, I know, I know man, I saw, I saw like, no, no. The Tide beat Illinois 21-15 on that date, the Liberty Bowl. And the coach, Paul William Bear Bryant, bowed out of his college career of 38 years And he had a record that speaks for itself, 323 victories, 85 defeats, 17 ties, and 27 bowls, 12 SEC championships, and six national titles. But when asked how would he like to be remembered, Coach Bear Bryant said this, that I helped more people than I hurt. Here we have someone who's great, great career, phenomenal career as a football coach. And he wanted to be remembered as someone who helped more people than he hurt. Uh, There's something about greatness. There's something about when someone's really good at something that draws us in. And now I want you to imagine that you're a first century disciple of Jesus. You're walking with him. You're watching what he does and you're listening to what he says. What is it that you think would captivate you the most? What is it, if you could ask him to teach you to do anything, what would it be that you would ask him to teach you to do? Uh, The disciples of Jesus were in this case in Luke chapter 11, and we'll look at the text and see what they asked Jesus to teach them. We're in Luke 11. I'll read the first four verses. This is God's word. Please give attention to it. 
Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. The setting of Luke 11 is this. Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. And this will be a one-way trip. He will not return. We know that when he gets there, he's going to make the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And all along the way, he's been active in ministry. He's been preaching and teaching and performing miracles. And in Luke chapter 10, just a chapter prior, he sends out his disciples two by two to go and to bear witness to his name. And all along the way, Luke, and especially Luke, the gospel writer, is teaching us that Jesus is praying. It's Luke, and only Luke, that records in chapter 3 that when Jesus was baptized, he was praying. And the heavens were opened. The voice came and said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. It's Luke that records in chapter 6, verse 12, that before he chose the disciples, the 12 that would walk with him for over three years, that he went to a mountain and he prayed and he continued in prayer all night to God. It's in Luke 6, verse 12. And when Jesus and uh, region of Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Before asking that question, and we know Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But before asking that question, the Bible says in chapter 9 that Jesus was praying on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Jesus is praying. It's not surprising to the disciples here in Luke 11 that Jesus is praying. He's a man of prayer. And we see in verse 1, he's praying in a certain place. And when he's finished, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And I just want you to notice that with me. The disciples have watched Jesus for some time now do a, man, a number of things, all manner of things. But they don't ask him to teach them to perform miracles or to cast out demons. They don't even ask Jesus to teach them to preach. They look at their Lord praying, and when he's finished, they say, I want to pray like that. Whatever it is that he does in terms of his relationship with God, I want that. And the point that I want to make tonight is that the heartbeat of a disciple, the very core, the essence of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is I want to be like Christ. I want to speak like him and think like him and live the way he lived. And in context here, Luke 11, I want to pray like him. Disciples pray like Jesus prayed. And so we will see in these verses here that in order to pray like Jesus prayed, our prayers must be reverent, missional, practical, and relational. And we'll look at those 
one by one. So I will make the case we should pray in order to pray like Jesus. We should pray reverently, missionally, practically, and relationally. First, pray reverently. Notice the words our Lord gives in response to this request. Lord, teach us to pray, and he gives his answer. When you pray, say this. Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is an old school term. Um, The word is hagiatso. It means to render or acknowledge something to be venerable or considered holy. And even though we have modern translations, that term still tends to be translated hallowed. It's, It's not just to say, God, holy is your name, but may your name be kept holy or rendered holy or treated as holy. When we pray this way, we're praying that in our hearts and in our lives, we would respect God in such a way that people can see that God is to be respected and revered and treated as holy. When, when we look at Jesus' praying here, verse 1, it says, When he prayed, his disciples looked and they thought, I want to pray like that. It wasn't just the words that Jesus said. Um, I'll ask a question. How, how many of us know the words of this prayer, the Lord's Prayer? Show of hands. All right, virtually all of us. It's a very common model prayer. It's not just repeating the words that make this prayer reverent. It, it, it's, a, it's a frame of mind where we approach God in such a way that we recognize that he is holy, he is exalted, and he is lifted up. It wasn't just the words that Jesus used. It was the reverence that he had for the Father. And the writer to the Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. He says this, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And then this phrase, And he was heard because of his reverence. The writer to the Hebrews says Jesus... Our master, our Lord, was heard because of his reverence. And so I ask you, do you pray reverently? Would someone overhearing you pray, if someone were to listen to your prayers, would they say that you pray as one that respects God and honors God and understands who God is? Uh, That's the way Jesus prayed, and that's the way he teaches us to pray. Father, hallowed be your name. Do you want to pray like Jesus? Then pray reverently. Next, pray pray missionally. Pray missionally. Uh, Verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, and your kingdom come. Our master teaches us to pray with God's priorities. First, he says, pray reverently. Pray for God's name to be kept holy above all. But then, then he says, Pray that God's kingdom would advance, that the mission of the Lord, the the gospel reign of God would advance. Uh, The parallel passage to Luke chapter 11 is in the Sermon on the Mount. We know that's in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in Matthew 6, this same pattern is taught by Jesus there. He teaches, hallowed be your name, and then very next, your kingdom come. But what is the kingdom of God? Jesus teaches about it all the time. Uh, The word is used all the time in the New Testament. 
And even Jesus would go on and say parables and not really define the kingdom, but he would say things like, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a man finding a treasure in a field. And for joy over it, he sells all that he has in order to buy the field because he wants that treasure. He would always describe it as the kingdom is like this. Uh, Philip Ryken comments on the kingdom in this way. I think his words are insightful. He says, the kingdom of God is not a nation state. It's not a system of government or a geographic region on a political map. Very simply, God's kingdom is God's rule. It is the sovereign administration of his authority over creation, over his enemies, and over the people who honor him as their king. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it is just this. God's administration, his sovereignty over all creation, over even his enemies and over us who honor him as our king. And so when we pray, your kingdom come, we pray that the rule of God would govern our hearts. That part of us that's, that's still not yet like Christ, we want God to help us really obey and follow the rule of God, that he would be king first in our hearts, but not just in our hearts, also in our homes, in our connect groups, in our church. Uh, we want gospel mission to advance all throughout the world. That's why we pray, as we did tonight on the pink slip, we pray for missionaries. We pray that God would take his gospel rule to the ends of the earth. And so I ask you, do you pray with a priority on gospel missions? When you come to God in prayer, is it one of the first things you think about? God, God may your rule extend to the end of the earth. May people who now do not call on you as Lord, may they come to know you as Lord and Savior. Many years ago, in a, a little church during worship, it was time for giving. And the ushers would come, and they would collect their offering. And a little boy, as they were returning to the front, he, he, he nudged on the coattail of one of the ushers. And he asked, please set your offering plate down on the floor. And the usher was a little confused and perplexed by that request, but he, he put it down on the floor, and the little boy proceeded to step into the offering plate. And it was his way of saying, I give my whole life to you, Lord. Not just my money, not just the coins I have, but my time, my strength, and all the days of my life. That little boy was none other than Robert Moffat, who was pioneer missionary to Africa and father-in-law to the missionary David Livingstone. He, he offered himself for gospel mission. And I'm saying now that Jesus prayed in such a way. He, he offered himself for the advancement of the kingdom, and he prayed that way. He taught us to pray that way. Your kingdom come. And so if you want to pray like Jesus, pray missionally. Pray that God's kingdom would advance. Next, disciples of Jesus, pray practically. Pray practically. Verse 3. Give us each day our daily bread. After prioritizing God's name and God's kingdom, Jesus teaches us to pray for our needs. 
question for you in your prayers. How common is it for you to begin your prayers with your needs? Uh, if I assess my prayer life, it's probably common for me to start prayers with God I need. And there's a reason for that. We're needy people, are we not? We're like sheep and we need a shepherd. And it's okay to pray for our needs. Uh, we have on our pink prayer list many needs to pray for. And Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. But Jesus taught us to prioritize God's name and God's kingdom over our needs. And I want to point that out in this text. Verse 3 comes after verse 2, right? He teaches us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name first, and then your kingdom come, and then our, our needs. And I, I think that's an encouragement to us in prayer. Consider this. If we are praying to a father who is high and lifted up, exalted, holy, a God who is sovereign and king over all, who is advancing his kingdom. That ought to encourage us when we come to pray for our daily bread, should it not? He who is Lord over all and cares for everything, does he not care that his children have bread to eat? That if we're sick, we're cared for by our father? He said in his word, He clothes the flowers of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. Are we of not more value than they? Of course we are. And so if you're sick, pray to your father and ask him for healing. We did that tonight. Uh, if you're hungry, ask the Lord to provide for you. He cares for us. And sometimes, at least I can just, if I can confess to you guys, sometimes we're tempted to think um, God is out there taking care of the big stuff. And he doesn't really care about my tiny little needs down here. Um, that's not the way Jesus taught us to pray. The very hairs of our head, Jesus said, are numbered. And God cares about everything that concerns us. So take everything to God in prayer. What does the hymn writer say? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Uh, Paul says this in Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Don't, don't be anxious about it. Pray about it, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God. We need peace. If you want peace, pray. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. A couple Sundays ago, I teach um, our college students in the College Connect group. And a couple Sundays ago, a young man stated to us that he has a brain tumor. He was a doctor found the brain tumor. And um, you never prepared to hear anything like that in a connect group. Um, he's afraid. We're afraid for him. And I said, you know, we're just going to pray about it. I don't have any words to say other than Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It's the first thing came to my mind. 
Don't be anxious about it. Let's pray about it. We all got around and we, um, we prayed. We called on the Lord to heal our brother and to give the doctors wisdom to know what to do and how to handle it. And uh, praise God, he gave me a report that it's not cancerous. So, so thankful for that. Um, they still need to remove it, but I, I'd like to believe God answered our prayer. It's not a cancerous tumor. Um, and maybe some of you have things going on in your life and the lives of your family. Jesus told us to pray about it. If he cares about us having daily bread and God providing that, surely he cares about us if we have brain tumors or anything else. So pray. Pray about the practical needs that you have in your life. Pray practically. Carry everything to God in prayer. Finally, pray relationally. Pray relationally. Verse 4, Jesus says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. The greatest threat, the single greatest threat to relationships is sin. Uh, isn't that true? I believe it was Adam and Eve. They were walk the Bible describes their relationship with God before sin as walking with the Lord in the cool of the day. Everything was good and very good until Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to eat. And immediately, rather than walking with the Lord in the cool of the day, what is he doing? He's hiding in the bushes, running away from the presence of God, and covering himself with fig leaves. Sin destroys relationships, and fundamentally, it destroys our relationship with God in such a way that rather than being a friend of God, we're enemies with God. We're, there's warfare between the sinner and God. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died to bridge that divide. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we have a pathway to peace with God. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Pastor Jim says it regularly. I believe it to be true. The greatest need we have in our life is forgiveness. It's to be forgiven. Jesus accomplished that for us. And so when he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins, it's important to always be mindful in prayer that we have that only through the death that he accomplished, the payment, the satisfaction that he paid for us on the cross. And so when we pray, are we sensitive to the sins that we've committed against God? We ought to be. When we come to God in prayer, we ought to come confessionally. Uh, John says in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have no sins, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when we pray, we ought to pray saying something like this, Father, I've sinned against you. Please forgive me. Help me. And not just praying for forgiveness of our sins, but praying with the willingness to forgive the sins of others. How easy is it for us to ask God for forgiveness? And how difficult is it often for us to extend that same forgiveness to others? 
Uh, my favorite parable that Jesus ever taught is in Matthew 18. Unforgiving servant. It's prefaced by Peter coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, um, how many times do I have to forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? Is, is seven a good amount? Uh, and Jesus says, what? It's, it's not seven times, but 70 times seven. And he says in Luke, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and comes to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. It's easy for us to ask God for forgiveness. But isn't it true that it's much more difficult, often it is, much more difficult for us to extend that same forgiveness to others? In that parable, Matthew 18, we see a servant who owed a king 10,000 talents. And one talent was worth anywhere from 15 to 20 years wages. That's one talent. He owed 10,000. In contemporary dollars, that's about $6 billion with a B. Imagine that. Imagine being in debt to someone $6 billion. He obviously could not pay. He goes to the king. He confesses, I cannot pay you, but I will do my best. Please give me mercy. And the king is very loving and merciful and kind. He's a picture of, of God, right? Simply because he asked for forgiveness, simply because he pleaded with him, this king forgives the debt. All $6 billion of it, 10,000 talents. Gracious, right? This same servant goes out. He finds his partner, his friend, his companion, who owes him 100 denarii. denarii. This is... um. A smaller amount, but it's no, it's no chump change. So according to common dollars, it's about $12,000. Someone owed me $12,000. I definitely want that back, right? $12,000. But what is it compared to $6 billion? This is Jesus' point. That servant who was forgiven so much, he refused to forgive his fellow servant. And Jesus said that the king said, throw him in jail. And the father will do the same to us if we don't forgive from our hearts our brother. God teaches us to pray relationally, to pray with an eye to forgiving other, other people who've wronged us. The same way that Jesus has extended that forgiveness to us. And if the truth be told, we're not as prone to do that. So he teaches us to pray. If you should forgive someone, you should pray for the grace to do that. And if you find that you're not forgiving to other people, pray about your unforgiveness. Pray about everything. I've prayed about not wanting to pray before. God, please help my prayerlessness. Pray about everything. And lastly, praying relationally means to pray that we be kept from sin altogether. Jesus concludes this small teaching on prayer by saying, and lead us not into temptation. The, the real heart of the disciple is not just that we would have forgiveness after we sin, but, but God, help me to be kept from sin. Lead me not into temptation. I don't even want to be tempted to sin. 
Jesus teaches us to pray that way, not just for sins already committed, but that we would avoid sin altogether. And when we are tempted, the disciples' prayer is to ask God to help us so abide in him, so love him, that rather than sin, we would choose him over the sin. We would avoid that temptation. We would say no to that temptation. Do you want to pray like Jesus prayed? Anybody in here want to pray like Jesus prayed? Show of hands. I hope we do. Well, then pray like this. Pray reverently. Pray missionally. Pray practically and pray relationally. And in so doing, you will pray like your master, like your Lord. And someone just may say to you, teach me to pray the way you do.